Hello, Marvelites. You are listening to Marvel's pull list for new comics on sale February 3rd, 2021. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Tucker, how are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. I'm looking at something new here. I'm looking at a new Ryan Panagos, Agent M, in a new space. Yeah. I'm in my new office, which is wow. the basement of my house. Uh, I haven't decorated it yet, but I was able to bring my microphone and my laptop over to record the show. But it's it's exciting. I've got like built-in shelves, and I've got so much room, and there's going to be so much Marvel stuff for for work. It's great. It's it's very exciting. And uh, you know, speaking of all that, I wanted to point out a couple of tweets we had from one of our loyal listeners from the tech lord at Lex Pendragon said Marvel's pull list gets my pulley of the week for the interview with Nick Lowe because he is reading to his kids the same way I am with mostly the same books which is really really cool I love that if you've missed our interview with uh, Nick Lowe talking about comics for kids well then uh you missed out on some good stuff. <laughs> and then he followed that up by also saying, big congrats to me, H&M. New house, official daughter, and you already had the partner that you love. Your life is a ding-dang delight. Thank you for letting us listen to it. Yes, all of those things are not fully the, – the official daughter is still two weeks away. <laughs> right. It's crazy. Wild, yeah. wild times. But yes, house, wife, all the good stuff. It ain't bad. What a nice note. Thanks. I love that, Lex. Yeah, appreciate it. Appreciate it. If you are just joining us on the show, we're going to run down every single brand new Marvel comic released this week. We have a bunch of them to talk about. Then we're going to get into our reading club where we look at a, a classic story with someone amazing. And this week, we really lucked out. Yeah. We have the mighty writer and editor himself, Christopher Priest. He joins us to talk about Spider-Man versus Wolverine from 1987. Yeah. Yeah. It's honestly one of my favorites we've done so far. It's just a gold mine. There's yeah, so much cool stuff in there. Truly. So that'll be great. We'll get into that a little bit later in the episode. First up, we're going to give you our picks of the week, our personal favorites, and then get into all the comics that are out, giving out some pulleys, aka our little awards that we give out each week. So we're going to start things off with our picks. I'm going to go first with one of my two picks. I've got Avengers Mech Strike number one. Yes, you heard that right. Basically, the book that's about Avengers in giant <laughs> mech suits is one of my picks of the week because hot damn, how could it not be? It's yeah. <laughs> written by one of our favorites, a perennial favorite of the show, Jed McKay, writer of Black Hat and many other comics, art by Carlos Magno, who just crushes it. He did a great Empire Avengers series, and he did the wonderful Invader series, colors by Guru EFX. This is just, like if anybody out there is hankering for George Perez vibes. Well, I'm sorry. There is no other George Perez. George Perez has retired and we will never see his like again. But Carlos Magno is stepping up and like getting in there and doing some of the most detailed, incredible, really cool, emotional, action-packed, wild work that you're going to see in any comic this year. It's awesome. You've got this great team of Avengers fighting giant monster things. I'm going to give a pulley because it has my new favorite monster description. They call the monster that they're fighting in the issue a Cronenberg Godzilla, which is such an evocative, perfect description. If you know the work of David Cronenberg, this nasty biological 
organic nightmare body horror business. And then you take that with Godzilla and a little bit of machinery. It's just, it's really cool. I'm going to stress this. You read this book, you've got Jed's work, amazing, but you're seeing a superstar in the making with Carlos, Mm -hmm. who, you know, he doesn't, as an artist, they don't have the same level of output, you know, that they don't get to put out as many books as others. So when you see it, it's like an event. Mm -hmm. So Carlos here, this is like big stuff. I had an idea that I would love this book, you know, when we saw the solicits, when we saw some of those preview pages, I was like, yeah, I think this is going to be a book for me, but it really freaking rules. Oh, yeah. Um, hey, you were mentioning some weird body horror darkness strangeness, and that brings me to my pick of the week, which is King in Black, Gwenum versus Carnage number two. It's written by Sean and McGuire with art by Flaviano and Iguara, colors by Rico Renzi. And letters by VCs Ariana Mar. You know, I was really into this first issue. Obviously, I'm a huge fan of Sean McGuire's writing. In this issue, we get to see the Gwen Stacy versus Mary Jane Watson story, but in the most unusual of terms. I really enjoy going as far as an event like King in Black will take you. And that means it's like it's metal, it's horror, it's darkness. Uh, So to take a couple of characters that you wouldn't necessarily associate with those things and drop them into the middle of the action is so much fun for me. And look, so much of it is also down to this art, which I think is incredible. Huge shout out to Flaviano, huge shout out to Iguara and Rico Renzi, who is maybe among the most familiar people with Gwen Stacy, with Spider-Gwen, with Ghost Spider, to come in here and have the ability to tell this neon splattered wild story that is a super fluid movements super visceral fight scenes it's just awesome this entire creative team i think knows this character super well and so to see them be experimental in this way is really really fun it's just really awesome i love it yeah all right let's talk about my second pick of the week which is x factor Number seven, the creative team is uh, Leah Williams, art by David Baldeon, colors by Israel Silva. You know, Avengers Mech Strike is the big blockbuster, you know, widescreen action, Avengers fighting giant monsters wearing mech suits. X-Factor is the almost complete opposite in so many ways. It's like a very extremely character-driven team book. X-Factor is the like team of investigators on Krakoa. They look into all kinds of stuff. And it's got such an eclectic group as the members of the team, a lot of personalities that conflict. And in this issue, we also see a lot of personalities sort of like coalesce and, and come together and sort of work really well together. You know, you've got iBoy and Prestige, aka Rachel, Prodigy and Northstar, Polaris, Dokken, Aurora. It's so wonderfully written. There's the the dialogue, the conversations, the sort of like hills and valleys of emotional roller coaster that you go through in every issue and in this issue. And it also it it has a something that kind of reminds me in one way of Unbeatable Squirrel Girl is like X Factor feels like a book that is so jam-packed with everything character, dialogue, story. Like, it feels like you're getting so much more than your money's worth when you get an issue of X Factor in all the best ways possible. David Baldeon, we sing his praises 
nonstop since Domino. We were talking about him and like his facial mastery, his acting, his clothing, his fashion style, like everything going on here. And in a lot of this issue, you also have Tommy brother to Billy Wiccan, aka Wiccan, one of the young Avengers. Tommy is having some smooches with one of the members of X Factor, but also Tommy's a speedster. So the sense of speed that is brought into the book adds this sense of whimsy and wonder and joy and humor amidst a book that is also like characters talking about abuse and death and really heavy stuff. God, I love this book so much. It's so friggin' good. It's Everything that I could have wanted out of a book, but had no idea I needed. Talking about books we love. Now we're jumping over to our pulleys list this week, and we're kicking it off with Avengers number 42. This is an issue that takes place at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. It takes place in China. It takes place on Avengers Mountain. It takes place in Ukraine. It takes place on Easter Island. It's all over the world. It's all happening at once. It's the kind of story and like rhythm that I think truly takes a master of the art to pull off. And of course, we have that in Jason Aaron. It's also a book where you get a great scene with Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. And that is truly, I think, the perfect example of what makes this Avengers series so special. And really this arc, which I'm a big fan of. This is Enter the Phoenix and... It's one of those things where if you could take any one of those stories, whether it's Echo and Namor facing off, whether it is Luke Cage and Danny Rand, whether it's whoever pops up in this book, and there are a lot of characters, they would be enough for the focus of a big Avengers storyline. But to have them all going on at once, it really feels like Jason Aaron just letting loose in that way and just giving you everything you could want from an action-packed Avengers issue. It's so cool, and I'm continuously stunned at how they managed to pull it off. Uh, You're talking about the Phoenix there. Well, the next book we're going to talk about features a character who played an integral part in the original Dark Phoenix saga, but I will not spoil their name. I'm talking about the book Hellions, and it's issue number nine. Hellions is this team of mutants that has been put together to help them work out some of their baser instincts and their nastier parts of their personalities. They tend to be more rough and tumble side of Krakoa. And and this issue, they go through a whole lot. The pulley I want to give to this one is for the character I will not name. So I won't spoil it, but I will say that this character gets some big power moves. And it's one of those issues that just like a simple couple of things can really elevate a character that you didn't expect to get elevated. It's a big one for the character whom I won't name and I will tease you about. So everybody's got to go read Hellions number nine. Uh, Now we're jumping over to Immortal Hulk issue number 43. And folks, this is one that got me choked up. What a cool issue. I honestly don't know how Al Ewing does it. It feels like kind of like Avengers. He's able to tell five stories at once. And I don't mean that in terms of like, oh, we have this scene going on here and Meanwhile, this scene is happening over here. I mean that in terms of the layers going on in a character's mind all at the same time. And there's a part in this issue where the Hulk emerges. And uh, it's just the, the kind of inner monologue that goes on as we're not certain if the Hulk is going to be allowed to emerge or not. And there's a repetition kind of, of words as you turn the page where the Hulk is on the precipice of coming out. And the the, the captions are, it ain't my fight, I ain't a good guy. 
I ain't, we ain't. Are we? What do you think? Yeah, okay, kid. And you turn the page and it says, okay. And there he is. And I won't talk about what the context of that is, but it's extraordinarily powerful. Ah, I love that bit. It's so good. We've gone low with this character. We've gone to the depths. We've really experienced a lot of pain in this book. So when you get a moment like that, where it feels like pure triumph and acceptance, it's really beautiful. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things that just add it to the library, add it to the huge library of moments and incredible issues for Immortal Hulk. Hell yeah. All right, we're going to get into a King in Black section of books this week. We've already talked about one, which is one of your picks, but we have a couple more, starting with King in Black, Black Knight number one. So if you don't know who the Black Knight is, this might be a really good one to get you started on learning about the character, getting a sense of what they're all about. Black Knight has a cool sword called the Ebony Blade, uh, but in this story... The Black Knight has to team up with a couple of other heroes, namely Arrow and Swordmaster. We had some recent Arrow and Swordmaster series. There's some fun stuff here with Swordmaster because they, he and Black Knight are both sword wielders. My pulley for this would go to a uh, pulley for Sexy Beast of the Week, which <laughs> is no this big, beautiful splash page by Jesus Saiz where Null takes the form of this god of war named Chiyu that has shown up in the Swordmaster comics. And it is awesome. Just an intimidating, beautiful splash page of a terrifying, terrifying monster. Yeah. Uh, Next up in the King in Black realm, we have King in Black Marauders number one. What was most striking for me about this is, one, I'm a huge fan of Bishop, and we get some great Bishop moments in this issue. But two, on a bigger scale, it feels like this issue is because there's so much politics, there's so much interpersonal rivalries and relationships and so many different things to contend with across Krakoa, and that goes across all of the X-Books. This was an issue where I felt like we really got to see the Marauders act like a team and deal with the problem as a team. And that problem is obviously King and Black related. My pulley for this one might go out to some great Iceman moments, which I just loved. It was really cool to see everybody from Kate to Bish to Bobby come through with their powers in a big way and deal with this situation that's much bigger than themselves. It's kind of a classic X-Men story in that way. I really, really enjoyed it. Next King in Black tie-in is King in Black Return of the Valkyries, issue number two. This is the tale of Jane Foster as Valkyrie, and she is inadvertently kind of getting the gang back together, uh, bringing forth the new you know suite of Valkyries. And we were introduced to a new character in the first issue. We really get to see them take off in this one. It's a lot of fun. It's really cool to see Jason Aaron joined by Torin Gronbeck here as writers to come full circle in uh, what he did to the the Valkyries in War of the Realms to bringing them back here in really cool new ways. I was going to give this a pulley for Axe Wielder of the Week, but I actually want to give a pulley to Unknown Origin of the Week. We find out the origin of Nowhere, the big celestial head that is depicted in this issue. Next up, we have Venom. Number 33, obviously walking hand in hand with the King in Black main event series. We have some huge character moves happening for Dylan in this issue that are just utterly fascinating. It's something I love to see. I love to think back to that first issue when we were introduced to Dylan and track 
what has been an enormous journey with this character. And then we have Eddie, who is in the hive. He's been reunited with Rex, a character that he has known from his past. And also now Flash Thompson. Uh, Where they go, what they do is really, really fascinating. I love the way it's visualized. Obviously, we have Marvel Stormbreaker, Ivan Coelho, bring it all to you. And uh, hey, it's public knowledge now. Donnie and Ryan's run and, you know, the rest of the incredible art team that we've seen across this entire series will come to a close with Venom number 200. And knowing that, that being public information now, uh, it really makes some of these moments hit home even harder, makes me appreciate them even more. uh, And I can't wait to see where we go next. Yeah. So that is the King and Black side of things, but we still have more books out this week, including Legend of Shang-Chi number one. This one, I'm just going to give a pulley for the martial arts melee of the week because this book has Shang-Chi going toe-to-toe with Lady Deathstrike in a museum. It's rad. The fight scene is like eight pages long and it's really good. It's really well choreographed and it's more great Shang-Chi action if you want to get acquainted with the character before the film. Next up, we have Runaways, number 33. And just what a gulp of ice, fresh water when you're parched this book is every single time. What a delight. A triple D, ding, dang, delight this book is. Yes. At every single turn, it is truly, I cannot say it enough. I will scream it out my damn window. What a pleasure it is to read this series. You know what? It was funny. It reminded me of our conversation with Nick Lowe from our last episode of just like great sort of all ages storytelling. And this one I think is perfect whether you might consider yourself a peer of the Runaways or if you're someone who struggles to put on socks in the morning like me. It is just beautiful (laughs) stuff. We get a little bit of Wolverine action in this issue, which is wonderful. And uh, just what a pleasure it is to see Rainbow and Andres take the reins every single time with these great characters. I I like self-edit to not pick more than two books, but if I were picking more books, Runaways would 100% be up there. It is just the best. Totally. Oh, man. So All right. Uh, let's talk about some Star Wars. We've got Star Wars issue number 11 out this week. My pulley goes to, to C-3PO um, because he has <laughs> this great moment this week. And it just made me think. I was trying to figure out a way to explain it. Like I felt like 3PO was on like some competition reality show uh-huh. where he just – crushed someone and he like owned it and he does like a little spin around and he's like "Mm -hmm." and like just big big energy here for c3po uh so just my pulley goes for c3po again that work it moment of the week (laughs) i love it uh next up also in the realm of star wars we have star wars the high republic number two this is chapter two it's called tomb in space this is a really fascinating series i think It's an era of Star Wars that is hugely talked about, hugely debated, and much loved. So to be at the ground level of it, you know, and get to know these characters as we are here is a really cool thing because we didn't know them before this. We are just getting to know them for the first time here. And I feel like there's some very concise storytelling happening here. My pulley goes to character design because there is a lot going on here. There is amazing character design, amazing production design going on in here. It's of the era. And I think that's something that I'm deeply fascinated by of just kind of charting the course of the visuals of the Star Wars universe and getting to settle into that here and play around in this sandbox is really, really fun. 
last two books coming up. Uh, we've got Strange Academy number eight. You know, we've got really great books about teenagers right now between Runaways and Strange Academy. Strange Academy is, for anybody who doesn't know, it is the magic school in the Marvel Universe. So it is a school meant to help kids who are adept at magic in one form or another understand, harness, and learn about their powers and abilities. And it's been a roller coaster ride. There's been death and resurrection and, and chaos and transportation and all kinds of stuff going on. In this one, there's a lot of funny moments, a lot of sweet moments, a couple sad moments. We get a great sequence where one of the main characters, she gets to go and visit Dr. Strange's Sanctum Sanctorum and gets my pulley of the week for bling ring of the week. Uh, she gets a, <laughs> a piece of jewelry that is Really cool and just so beautifully rendered by the art team of Humberto Ramos and Edgar Delgado. Just gorgeous looking book. Oh, yeah. Wrapping things up this week with Warhammer 40,000, Marnius Calgar, number four. Or as I like to think of it, tabletop gaming cable? Kind of. Oh, um, kind of, yeah. Uh, yeah, I say that because it, it really incorporates a bunch of different elements that I think are realized so well. It's a series that I think feels like you're playing a game. It feels like you're on this journey. It feels like you're making the choices right alongside these characters. And I think a lot of that is down to how rich the universe is. There's also some really cool kind of informational and interstitial matter in here in text pages that I think is really, really interesting. And I think it's a perfect kind of thing for this book. We know that Kieran Gillen, the writer, is a big Warhammer 40,000 fan, and he knows it super well. So this is a really, really cool penultimate issue. And I think it's bloody, it's gory, it is, if you're into this kind of storytelling, into this kind of gaming setup or premise or world that we have here, uh, I think it delivers on all those fronts. All right, that's what we have for individual issues on sale this week. Now, moving over to print collections, we got a ton this week. Maybe there's like 15 or more new print collections available. Immediately pops out is Don of X Volume 12 for me, but we also have Venom by Donny Cates Volume 2. We also have Avengers by Jonathan Hickman. We have uh, a Scarlet Witch collection by James Robinson. There is so much to enjoy here in print this week. That Scarlet Witch collection, I want to point out too, James Robinson was the writer, but every issue had a different artist and mm. every issue was just singularly beautiful. It's a tour de force, uh, really, really cool storytelling by a number of artists. So that one's fun. Uh, over on Marvel Unlimited, which is our subscription service with over 28,000 comics you can read, you go to marvel.com slash unlimited to sign up. A uh, ton of new issues this week, including a big one, Ten of Swords Stasis is a biggie in there. Uh, you get the full list of all of these on marvel.com. And while you're there, you can make sure you're signed up for Marvel Unlimited so you can read Spider-Man versus Wolverine number one, which is uh, written by Christopher Priest, our guest for our reading club this week. We're going to get into it when we talk to Priest about, you know, our experiences with this book. But man, even now talking, we did this interview a little bit ago, just thinking about it makes me want to read it again. Yeah. Like, yeah. Just just <laughs> talking to you about talking about it. I'm like, man, I could I could spend a little while and read that book again. Yeah. It's real good. It's really good. Uh, it's a great comic book. It's from 1987. And Christopher Priest is a writer. He's here to talk about it. Let's get into it. Christopher Priest, welcome to Marvel's Pull List. It is a ding-dang delight to have you on the show. Oh, my goodness. Tucker and I have been real giddy about this conversation. So thanks for joining us. 
Oh, we're happy to do that. Thank you. When I was thinking about having you on the show and we were talking about it with our producers, I, my thought was like, this is going to be great. And I was like, oh, crap. What are we going to talk about? There's, you know, a, a wide array of possibilities. Um, so I'm really excited. We're going to be talking about Spider-Man versus Wolverine in a little bit. Before we even get there, your story's been told and, and is, is around in a lot of places. But for our listeners, I would love if you could share how you originally got started at Marvel Comics. Uh, I got off the wrong stop at a subway and uh, no, um, I went to a journalism trade school, uh, New York City school, uh, high school. They had a bunch of vocational schools like art and design and music and arts and, and, and things like that. I went to uh, what was at the time called the New York School of Printing, which is now the, I think it's called the New York School of Media Arts. So they had a journalism program. So I was part of they, it. It was said printing, but they. They had two different courses. One was like if you wanted to be a printer and one is if you wanted to be a journalist. But, you know, in order to be a journalist, they taught you the printing side, the design side. So I learned, you know, literally how to do, you know, hot type and how to strip film and how to do all that stuff and how to do layouts. And, and you know, but I also learned all the journalism side. And so we had journalism classes and storytelling classes. And, and I always wanted to be a writer, but my mother wanted me to, me to be a lawyer. So I was on track to be a lawyer. So uh, uh, New York City, they had a, a high school internship program where they place you with some sort of firm somewhere. Uh, and I applied to, I think it was five law firms. And then on the list, I saw Marvel Comics. And I, and I was like, well, that, that can't be right. You know, Marvel Comics. So I said, well, what the hell? I'll sign up for Marvel Comics too. So uh, being 17 years old and stupid, I blew off all of the law firms. I, I didn't show up to any of them because I, you know, I, I had to see girls. I had girls. I, I was going to see girls, you know, I, I, was, I was handsome then, you know, uh, but the Marvel one, I showed up for that. If for no other reason than to just look around the office, you, you know, maybe I'll run into the Hulk. You never know. Right. You know, uh, so uh, I showed up there. Uh, I had a comic book that I had created. I'd written, drawn it. I'd lettered it. I printed it. I stripped the film, you know, so I come in with the blue lines. Uh, blue lines are like a proof. Well, well, they used to be. We don't use them anymore. But they're like a, a proof copy of a comic book's line art before it's colored and printed. So I came in with a blue line of, of my comic book, this awful, awful comic book that I wrote and drew. And I walk in there and there's like, you know, 15 kids in there with the art portfolios. And, and as far as I knew, I was the only writer in the room. You know, so out comes like the tallest white man I've ever seen in my life. It's like this white version of Wilt Chamberlain comes walking <laughs> through the door, you know, and, uh, and, and and just scary. You know, and he walks me back there uh, and he's got my comic book and he kind of flips through it. And then I hear him chuckling at a couple of I, I had a couple of good lines in the comic book, I guess, you know, but I, I never thought I'd get it. Uh, you know, I went on home. And I figured that's that. And uh, I think it was less than a week later. I, I got a phone call that I had been accepted. And that uh, in uh, September of, of 1978, I went to work uh, uh, at Marvel Comics uh, and Jim Shooter takes me down the hall and into the bullpen. And it really was a bullpen with all these correction artists and letterers working there. And he introduces me to this other kid. There's another teenager working there. And the guy is so happy to see me. He just lights up and he goes, wow, you're my new best friend. And he runs over to me and he takes this lanyard off of his head. And puts it onto my head. And what it is, it's the key to the Xerox machine. You are now in charge <laughs> of the Xerox machine. And that kid was named John Ramita Jr. 
And that's how we met and obviously went on from there. But yeah, that's how it all got started uh, back in 78. And it was uh, uh, like a dream come true. It was a magical, magical time for me. What was the kind of effect of those early days on you? I mean, obviously, you've had enormous success, both, I guess, inside in editorial and things like that. And then obviously, from the outside, as a writer, how much of your success in both of those ways do you credit to those early days and being around the atmosphere, understanding what it was like to, to know these people on a personal level? And maybe if that, you know, taught you some tricks of the trade later on when you were coming in in a more freelance capacity or as a writer, uh, as a creative. Well, it, well, it's important to note that I never left, that it's 40 years later and there's been rarely a year that's gone by when I haven't been connected to Marvel in one way or another. But as far as learning the trade, I learned everything from those early days at Marvel. I mean, Jim Shooter took me into Stan Lee's office and sat me down in a chair in Stan Lee's office. And I had Stan Lee come and sit next to me with original Jack Kirby art. And he's like, hiya, Jim, nice to meet you, right? You know, and Stan Lee sits there and teaches me sequential storytelling by going through Jack's art and explaining why he made the choices that he made, you know, and blah, 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 and how much copy you can put in this balloon and, and that kind of thing. Marie Severin was the art director uh, at the time, John Severin's sister and a wonderful woman. Uh, Marv Wolfman was a writer editor that, there, but he shared an office with Len Wein and uh, Dave Cockrum was, uh, also had an office back there. So I was always looking over Dave's shoulder. Uh, Rich Buckler was coming in and out, Joe Rubenstein, you know, that kind of thing. The editors were all tradespeople. So you had Al Milgram, who was a, an, an inker. Uh, his office was next door. He shared an office with his assistant, Joe Duffy, who was a seminal writer of uh, Power Man and Iron Fist. Wonderful writer. You know, Carl Potts was working there. Uh, eventually, Denny O'Neill came on board as an editor. It was a great time. I ended up working first for Paul Lakin, who was the editor of Crazy Magazine, but he was replaced by a man named Larry Hama. And I shared an office with Larry for a bunch of years. And Larry was a writer and an artist. And Jack Abel was there. I mean, it, it was just a wonderful time. This spunky kid shows up one day with his portfolio. And I'm working with uh, Ralph Macchio and his boss, Rick Marshall. And they're just tired and burnt out. And they've been looking at portfolios. And here's another kid with another portfolio. And I can't stand it. You know, so they go, they go out of the office and they bring in Elliot Brown. And Elliot Brown is a, a photographer and he was a photostat guy. He wasn't an editor. And he says, Elliot, would you just pretend to be Rick? And look at this guy's portfolio because I just I just can't I just I, I can't I can't look at another one I just can't uh, okay because we were launching Epic Illustrated in those days and everybody wanted to get on Epic Illustrated so Elliot sends me out to bring this guy in and I feel so sorry for this guy because they have no intention of paying this guy this kid any mind you know and I'm like this is awful like it's an awful thing to do to somebody but I'm I'm 17 years old and I'm an intern and you know I, I do what I'm told. So I go out there and I get this kid and he looks like he just got off the bus. This is a skinny white kid with bad hair. And, 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 you know, and he looks exactly like you think he does. He's this, this friggin' fan guy. And I'm like, oh, my God. And I walk this guy back into the office and, you know, and, and Elliot, you know, he goes to this, 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 this routine. You know, hi, I'm Rick Marshall, the editor of the illustrator. <laughs> and they're pulling this thing. And I feel so bad for this poor schmuck. And, and they're just going to give him the pass. And, you know, and Elliot starts going through the portfolio and he's, you know, he's, he's pretending to be Rick and he's doing all this stuff here. And then he starts turning the pages slower and slower and slower. 
you know, and I just kind of wander over and I take a look at this stuff and see like, what's he looking at here? And it was some of the most phenomenal artwork I'd ever seen. So I get out of my chair, I go down the hall and Rick Marshall is in the hall. <laughs> He's in the office, some other office talking to Ralph. And I said, look, I think you guys might want to come and look at this. I think this guy's the real thing. And they're blowing me off and like, oh, come on. And I said, well, you know, I, I don't know. I, I just got here. I've been here five minutes, but I think this guy is the real thing. <sighs> I drag him back down the hall. They reluctantly come down the hall. They look over Elliot's shoulder to see where I'm talking about. And they agree this guy is the real thing. And that's how we met Bill Sienkiewicz. Good Lord. <laughs> and I got a million stories just like that. You know, so it was it was a crazy time and it was just the best time to be this kid growing up at Marvel, surrounded by enormous talent, established talent, new talent walking through the door. And uh, it was just a great time. And then eventually uh, Shooter was able to get the budget to actually bring me on staff. So by the summer of 79, I was officially on staff at Marvel and became the first African-American editor. Well, I was an assistant editor. Uh, on staff, although at the time I didn't know it. At Marvel, race was like never an issue. It wasn't something that we ever really noticed or talked about. So there were lots of black artists. I didn't meet too many black writers, but you know, Ron Wilson was there and Dennis Cowan was my age and he was coming back and forth and and, and so forth. And, and, and there was lots of guys that were drawing. I, I didn't know any writers, but I, I didn't notice that there weren't any black editors. No, someone had to bring that to my attention like years later. I just loved being there. I felt so privileged, so blessed to be there. These were great people. These people were like my family. You know, we laughed, we cried. Uh, Marie Severance scolded me uh, like a mother because I needed to be scolded. I'm grateful that she scolded me because I probably wouldn't be in the business if she hadn't taken me into an office and said, you know, if you don't stop doing, because I was being really obnoxious. And a lot of editors were, were complaining behind my back about my behavior or, or, or something. I don't remember exactly what I was doing, but I was 17. I must've been doing something. And Marie loved me enough to drag me in her office and whoop me pretty good and fix the problem because she cared enough about me. <laughs> Sorry. No, I, I get it. She cared enough about me to whoop, <laughs> to want me to have a career. And she wanted me to make it in this business. Uh, and I loved her a lot. And, uh, if you ever look in Crazy Magazine, uh, we had this feature called Teen Hulk. And she frequently drew me into the background of Teen Hulk, <laughs> where this little black kid with big glasses, big thick glasses would show up. That was me. That was Marie uh, drawing me in there. And uh, I miss her. And uh, I, I loved her a lot. So there you go. She's a legend. Yes, she is. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's beautiful. And thanks for sharing. And how you're speaking about how you, you weren't really thinking about a lot of these things at the time. You weren't thinking about your place um, in the larger scale and the, uh, of Marvel and in the history of Marvel and what your presence there might have meant. Um, and I would imagine it was a similar thing when it came to the work itself of being in there, crunching on weekends, doing whatever it takes, um, and not thinking about the weight of, oh, what does this mean for this character? What does this mean? How is this issue or story arc or whatever it might be, how will that stand up to the pantheon of great stories uh, of which there are many that, that you, you worked on and, and wrote and contributed to. Do you ever take the time even nowadays to think about those kind of things? Do you, do you stop today or have you ever to, to say, wow, 
this is where I was at this place in history. This is what I contributed. Um, or is it something that to this very day, you're, you're just in it, you're in the trenches and you're, you're doing the work. Uh, that it's probably the latter. It's, uh, I went to C2E2, uh, I think it was 2017 when I had just started writing Deathstroke and, uh, the line to come to my table, uh, that was there three days, all three days. I couldn't get up from the table. Well, I, I could, but I had to get security or somebody to sit at my table so I could go to the bathroom. But it was, it was like, I couldn't do any panels. I couldn't leave the table. The line was just crazy, you know? And, and I, and, and I'm, and I'm like, okay, you people, you do realize I'm not Brian Bendis, you know, uh, I don't know what they were doing there. Maybe they got <laughs> lost. I'm not sure they were confused, you know, uh, but a lot of people actually came up with this uh, Spider-Man Wolverine thing that we will eventually talk about. So they knew who I was because Spider-Man Wolverine was written by Jim Owsley and not Christopher Priest. So they actually knew who I was. It was just very strange to me because, you know, uh, I live quietly alone in the woods. You understand? And I live among people who have no clue what I do for a living and don't really care. So uh, I don't really have any sense of celebrity or anything. The weirdest thing to me was um, I went down to the set of Endgame. And then I find out that, uh, you know, uh, some guy comes out of a corner and it's this guy, Kevin Feige, who comes over and introduces himself because he heard I was on the set, you know, uh, and, and I'm like, yeah, I'm nothing. And then we went on location for a location shoot and we're shooting this scene where the Avengers go to Wakanda and they're appealing to Shala for his help. So here is this, this big grassy slope and they did a couple of run throughs. Uh, so now we're resetting and, and I turn around and, and I see here's Chadwick Boseman. He's over here by the craft services table, you know, so I don't know what to do. You know, there's a guy standing here and, and, and I don't really know what he does. He's an electrician. He's a grip. I don't know something. And I go, uh, uh, excuse me, sir. You know, uh, would it be okay? Can I, could I say hello to Mr. Bozeman? And the guy looks over there and he, he looks at me and he goes, I don't see why not. He's standing right there. <laughs> you know, so I, I, just don't, I just don't know what the rules are. I don't know if you're allowed to talk to royalty or whatever. So, you know, I, I go creeping over to, to, to Chadwick cause I, I, I don't want to startle him. I don't want to startle him. You know, so I go to Chadwick and I go, uh, excuse me, Mr. Bozeman. Uh, I just wanted to say hello. Uh, I'm Christopher Priest, you know? As soon as I said my name, he lights up. And the guy lunges over and gives me this huge bear hug because he's a comics fan. He read my stuff, you know? So we actually made plans to link up with our mutual friend, Reggie Hudlin in LA and kind of hang out a little bit. And unfortunately between my work schedule and then COVID and then sadly uh, we lost him. Uh, that never happened, but he was uh, incredibly gracious, incredibly kind. But to respond to your question, this is what I'm talking about, where I have no sense of my own celebrity or whatever. Because when I go back home, no one pays me any attention. I'm just a schmuck who lives down the street, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, but to have these people who uh, they have their own screen with their name on it, you know, <laughs> Kevin Feige, you know, Chadwick Boseman, you know, to have these people actually know who the hell I am or care who the hell I am. Uh, that was really rewarding. On the other end, though, I, I try to keep my perspective on this thing because, you know, I just know a lot of people who just got really carried away with their with their ego and so forth. And they're just insufferable. You don't want to be in the same room with them. Dwayne McDuffie taught me about that. So uh, we were developing Milestone and we we're spending a lot of time together. So we we're spending these 18 hour days and locked up in closets, you know, and uh, I turned to Dwayne once and I said, uh, how does a guy like you, uh, as smart as you, 
it's got to be insufferable to be around regular people, you know, like, like how do you manage to keep your ego in check? And Dwayne said, Jim, my ego is so massive that if I let it in the room, no one would ever speak to me again. I know what I can do. I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm not good at, you know, and, uh, and I just kind of keep my perspective that way. And that's a, a lesson that, uh, that I've learned. It's not fake humility. It's actual humility. Cause I know here's stuff that I really suck at, uh, for some reason they keep hiring me anyway. Uh, <laughs> but in terms of the things that I feel like that I, I've accomplished or done well, you know, I take some quiet comfort or some quiet pride in it, but I don't, you know, I don't get carried away with it. I don't really have much perspective on it. That's fair, but we, we are going to shine you up a little bit because we're yeah. here to talk about <laughs> Spider-Man versus Wolverine, which is a story we love. You know, I, I was looking at a database that credit-wise, it said, you know, it probably listed you around 200 stories for Marvel as a writer, let alone, you know, all the ones you edited, which weren't even listed in the, like the numbers. So out of all those, when you, you know, we say we want to talk about one of your books, why did you choose Spider-Man versus Wolverine for this reading club? Spider-Man Wolverine is a book that if I had any sense, I would have quit the business after that book came out because it was the best thing that I'd ever written. I've never written a better comic book. I've written comic books that were almost as good. And, and, and I, there are projects that I take pride in that particular comic book. I've never written a better comic book than that one. And there were great expectations and great disappointments kind of as a result of it. How did this issue come about? It's a really unique thing in that it's, you know, 60 something pages beginning, middle end of a, one-shot story. How did this all happen? Uh, well, Jim Shooter was pissed off. Uh, I know that sounds unusual. It's unusual for Jim because uh, <laughs> he was, you know, such an easygoing guy. Jim was uh, uh, upset that the editors were not thinking outside the box enough, that we were being too conventional and we were getting too comfortable with whatever the story was. So we had this meeting where Jim was kind of browbeating us to come up with innovative ideas. And he's like, well, I don't understand why we're not doing something like, uh, and he threw out a couple ideas. And one of the ideas they threw out was like, why don't we have Spider-Man fight Wolverine? You know, and he turns to me because I was a Spider-Man editor and I'm like, you know, and I, you know, and again, I, I'm 20 years old, 22 years old, whatever I was. So Jim turns to me and says, why aren't you doing that? Get that done. Spider-Man versus Wolverine. And the one brilliant thing I've ever done in my entire career, I've never done anything more brilliant than this or ballsier than this was for me to speak up to Jim Shooter while he's in the middle of his tirade and go, actually, I'd prefer to write it. And he just pivots, you know, because Jim was my Obi-Wan. Jim was spending a lot of time teaching me the fundamentals of writing. So when I was ballsy enough to say I would rather write it, he didn't question my ability to do that. He just pivoted to Anne Nascenti, who was the X-Men editor, and said, fine, you write it, you edit it. So Anne, I think she pretty much let me do whatever I wanted to do. And what <laughs> I wanted to do is I wanted to, to hit a home run. I wanted to hit this thing out of the park. So when I approached the Spider-Man Wolverine project, my mindset was uh, Jerry Conway for Spider-Man. Jerry Conway's uh, seminal work for Harry Osborne's drug abuse, Death of Gwen Stacy, that era there, Gil Kane inked by John Romita, with all due respect to Stan and Steve who I adore. To me, that was the seminal golden era of Spider-Man. So I put on that hat for that stuff. For Wolverine, I was like, okay, I will be Chris Claremont stopping over Frank Miller's house. And I kind of got in that mindset. So that I, I kind of started from there. I don't have a specific recollection of Anne caring one way or another what I did. 
know? uh, so that was good and bad because that, that way it was just kind of like I didn't have a lot of interference, although I didn't have a lot of encouragement either. So let's pivot also to the the rest of the team, because on the art side for this is Al Williamson inking over Mark Bright. I hadn't read this story in years, and I just like reading it again reminded me how great it is. But man, that is a beautiful book. And you teamed up with M.D. Bright a number of times over the years. How the two of you first get lined up and, and you know, started working together? Uh, well, I, I had uh, I was doing a bunch of fill-in jobs for Jim Shooter because he was training me how to write. And then I wrote this uh, Falcon story and he gave it to this new artist that we had never heard of before. And then the boards came in from the new guy and they were just gorgeous. They were just dropped out gorgeous. And they made copies of them and they circulated them all over the office. The artist was a guy named Paul Smith. And Paul got picked up to do uh, virtually everything, and he went on to become Paul Smith. Shooter decided that he liked the the Falcon thing enough. Why don't we turn it into a miniseries? Why don't you give me three more, and we'll package them as a miniseries? So we needed to find an artist for the miniseries, and Shooter comes in with this guy named Mark Bright. And that's how Mark and I started working together. Reading this recently... I sunk in on a lot of different things and how much I got drawn in. Like I, sometimes you read a story and the rest of the world fades out and you just get brought into that comic. And that was what was happening with me here. And I felt myself dealing with the dizzying confusion that Spidey goes through. Like you really feel how he's so out of his depth and how his mind is racing in a million different places. And he's like, why am I here? What am I doing? Who is this guy? Like while he's swinging along and and following Wolverine, he's like, what am I doing? And I keep doing it. And I, I really love that about this story about how the idea of, of, we think of Spider-Man as like the everyman character we can all sort of associate with on a number of ways. I really felt like his sense of, (laughs) dread and almost horror at times in this storyline. That's what I loved about that character. He was an average guy. And I went, what if you took an average guy and you dropped him into Wolverine's world and really, you know, thought about what a real person might think? A couple of favorite parts of the book, but one of my favorite parts of the book was when you first meet Spider-Man, he's walking through Times Square and his spider sense goes off and then it stops and it goes off and then it stops. And it goes off and then it stops. And he's wondering, is something wrong with me? What's, what's, what's happening here? And then it occurs to him that maybe there's some danger that's intermittent, like somebody on a rooftop with a rifle moving the rifle around. So he immediately goes, I need to get into this. So he dashes into an alley to change into Spider-Man. But before he can get his clothes off, the gunshot goes off. So he's in the alley trying to get his clothes off and he can't get his clothes off fast enough. Now, mind you, Spider-Man's pretty fast. So we're talking only about a matter of a second or two. But to him, it was an eternity. And it crosses his mind the absurdity, the obscenity of me taking this time to change into a costume because I don't want people to know who I am. And I thought this is how a real person would feel if we were really dealing in reality. I like dealing in reality with these characters. So at some point, as you say, he's now in Berlin. He's dealing with all this craziness with Wolverine. I just asked myself, well, what I would do? And I said, I would freak out. I would get the hell out. And Spider-Man quits. He's not Spider-Man. By the way, that scene you're talking about where they're swinging through Berlin. He's swinging through Berlin as Peter Parker. He's got his web shooters. He did not bring his costume. So he's swinging around. As Peter Parker. And I think, to my knowledge, that's the first time we've done that. And Mark Bright did a 
amazing job with it. Just Peter Parker swinging around Berlin at night. You know, and he's, he's turns to Wolverine and goes, well, I don't have my costume. And Wolverine goes, you're kidding, right? You know, <laughs> who the hell knows? You, you think anybody in Berlin knows who Peter Parker is? You know, let's go. Let's go. So anyway, his friend Ned Leeds ends up uh, dead. He gets back to the hotel. He finds Ned Leeds dead. He has no idea what's going on. This is too deep for me. And rather than go, you know, I'm Spider-Man. I must get to the bottom of this, which is BS. He does what real people do. He freaked out and he heads to the bus station and he's, he's getting the hell out of there. The only thing that keeps him in Berlin is while he's waiting online to get his ticket to get on the bus is he starts to hear his Uncle Ben's voice in his head, reminding him that with great power comes great responsibility. And he sucks it up and he says, OK, I, I got to try. But it's those little human moments. And I am surprised that Shooter let it happen. But grateful that he did because Shooter, in, you know, he read everything. I, I guarantee you nothing went in that book that Jim did not look at. But this broke all the rules. Your hero is supposed to be heroic, supposed to be brave. Peter Parker is not a superhero. He is a guy who puts on a costume and runs around doing these heroic acts so he could photograph himself doing these acts so he could sell the pictures in order to raise money to pay his rent. That's who Spider-Man is. He's not a superhero. And that was the point I was trying to hammer home at every page in Spider-Man Wolverine. If that was your key into Spidey at, at those crucial moments, I mean, this book is so amazing because I really can't emphasize it enough for listeners, the depth that this book contains, the drama, the richness of character, the reality of the situations that they play it as people first uh, in so many different ways. If you're tapping into Spidey that way where you say, well, what would I do? I'm a guy kind of like Pete is. I know what it's like to live in New York City. How do you tap into Wolverine in a similar way to achieve like the incredible depth that we get out of that character as well in this story? I was writing Larry Hama. <laughs> I was sharing an office with Larry. I knew Larry very well. Larry has had an uh, extraordinary life, uh, a rich and full life, that he, and he shared a lot of those uh, experiences with me. And Larry's kind of a no-nonsense guy. He's very funny. He's uh, a very affable. It's good to know. But even at his age now, and I think Larry is 10 years older than I am, and I'm an old guy, even at his current age, Larry's not a guy you want to put your hands on. Larry was a pretty scary guy, even scarier around the time of Spider-Man Wolverine. I don't know where Chris Claremont was getting his Wolverine from, but I was getting my Wolverine from Chris's Wolverine, first and foremost, from Frank Miller, borrowing a lot of Frank Miller, uh, a lot of his technique. But for the soul, for the meat and guts of it, I was writing my boss. I was writing Larry. In my notes, I wrote down, I really love your Wolvie because he's a true blue friend, especially to Charlemagne. He's seen so much. He's a bit nasty. He's sad. He's sweet. He's funny. Just really hits home everything you were just saying. I've only met Larry once and I just like had the best hour conversation with him and it was, it was really, really great. The ending of the, the book I, and, you know, we don't want to give away everything here. We want, we've want we talked a lot about the story. Uh, it's a 30-year-old book. <laughs> if you haven't read it by now. <laughs> it's still it's important for, for listeners to, to read the books before we go through them. If they haven't, too bad. As you say, it's a 30-year-old book. But I really – the ending of the book when Peter gets home and he's just emotionally drained and destroyed and he's seen his coworker slash friend – 
killed. He's dealt with, most importantly, the situation with Wolverine and Charlemagne. And he's gone through all this. And that the last couple of shots are Spidey hugging Mary Jane. And I really love the last panel, like, pulls back out. And it's white background. It's just the two of them hugging. And just he just needs that, like, to be held for a second. I think it's a really devastating but sweet ending. Yeah, I, I was kind of ripping off Jerry Conway there. There's this amazing scene. God, the guy is just an amazing writer. After Gwen dies, where uh, Peter is devastated and he's back in his apartment and he, he and he, he's just, he can't hold it together. And Mary Jane comes along and Peter lashes out at her because Mary's the party girl. She's the good time girl. And he doesn't want to ruin her good time. So you might as well just leave me alone. And she doesn't, she stays. I wasn't in the business. I was a kid, you know, when I read that. And it changed my life. It's one, you know, every now and then someone will come up to me at a convention and say, by the way, Mr. Priest, you know, this particular comic book, whatever like that, or this series, or you're running a series really helped me through some, some difficult times. It really changed my life. And, and I don't know what to say to that. That just, that just, that seems so, come on, you know, I'm just a schmuck who writes comics, but I can tell you, Jerry Conway is a brilliant writer. I read that and I was like, you know, I want to learn how to write like that. It moved me so much emotionally. I want to learn how to move people like that so that particular ending there to me i was like that that was like a really kind of watered down version of something jerry did much better that's one of the great dynamics at play here is obviously pete's relationship with mj and then in certain kind of flip sides of the coin and in certain ways that are tougher more mature uh obviously logan's relationship with charlie and how that differs how that's similar what is your perspective on writing that in terms of finding that balance between the kind of youthful angle that obviously is so crucial to Peter Parker and the grizzled seeing everything angle on Logan? And we've seen that realized in terms of how they operate as superheroes. What's your perspective on that in terms of how that manifests itself in terms of their relationships and how they relate to other people? That's a pretty deep question. Um, <laughs> obviously, that was the contrast. The contrast is between the new kid who knows nothing and the grizzled veteran who's seen everything. There are qualities to Spider-Man that Wolverine does not get at first. At first, he's just trying to get rid of him. And then he's trying to be the cautionary tale. He says to Peter something like, uh, you'll never know, you'll never understand the life I live. And it's broken up into those three panels and it's meant to be chilling. So, yeah, it's just sort of meant for those two roads, those two things, you know. And, you know, so here you got Larry, who's been around forever. And then you have me, <laughs> you know, uh, 18 years old on roller skates, you know, uh, you know, screwing around at, at, at Marvel. A lot of times young people. And I was one of them. So, you know, uh, you know, I'm guilty of this, too. A lot of times people, they, we don't really invest enough in our elders, you know. That was just a, the dynamic there. I, I'm probably not answering your question right, but uh, but that was that was the dynamic at work there. What was the reception like to the book when the book comes out and starts getting around? And obviously wasn't <laughs> didn't have the internet to tell you what people thought about it immediately, but did you get a sense of, of how much fans were digging it right away? No, I, I never got a sense of the fans of, of what their reception was because it was a one shot. If it had been a series, eventually we would have gotten a letters page. 
And as you know, in those days, you had to actually write a letter. You know, it seems so archaic now. Dear Marvel, you know, <laughs> and you had to like, you know, lick a stamp, lick an envelope. And, you know, that seems so weird. Right. And we'd get like these stacks of mail all the time from fans who would tell us about ourselves. You know, <laughs> and we really did read those, by the way. You weren't wasting your time. We really did read them. So, no, I had no idea uh, about the fan thing, but I knew the book sold like gangbusters. Yeah, well, if our listeners out there, you read Spider-Man versus Wolverine, you start to check out other books by Christopher Priest, you read your Black Panther, you read a ton of other books, let your let your friendly comic book editors know. Tell C.B. Cebulski you want more <laughs> Christopher Priest in your Marvel comics, because I know I'm going to do that. I'm going to tell him what a great combo and uh, really appreciated it. Christopher Priest, thank you so much for being on the show. All right. Thank you guys for having me. And uh, we'll do it again sometime. Thank you. All right. Sure will. Priest, Christopher Priest, an amazing person, an amazing conversation, obviously an amazing creative and someone who stands right up there with the luminaries of Marvel history. And it's just always not just a joy, but a true, true pleasure to talk to Christopher Priest. That's a wrap for us here. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jorge Estrada, and MR Daniel with help from Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Polis audio development manager. And, you know, funny enough, uh, Brad has been building his own Avengers mech suit. But someone needs to tell him you can't make a mech suit out of meat and paper towels. As much salami as you think you can get to make that suit, it's not going to work, my brother. Yeah, this is mech suit. This is metal. meat suit. Not gabagool. Oh, boy, we got the gabagool in here. I'm Ryan. (laughs) And I'm Tucker. This is Marvel. Your universe. Gabagoo!